I uh, speak to my son almost daily on, um, by text. He's in Hong Kong, and they've been into this about eight weeks over there. And one thing we were talking about was just the isolation that sometimes we experience. And he said that this uh, was an, an introvert's dream uh, during this time, that people who like to be separated from others, it's just, you know, it's awesome for them. Uh, but for many of us, we kind of feel like we're under house arrest, you know, like we can't get out and do what we want to do and go and, and interact with people. And I was thinking about that because uh, being arrested is a pretty serious thing. I actually could say I've never been arrested, thankfully, but I've been in jail several times. And I will tell you, walking through the doors of a jail and having the doors locked behind you gives you kind of a strange feeling and hoping that they remember you don't belong there and that you're going to be able to leave when your time's up. Uh, when I was a little boy, I was fingerprinted by the FBI. I remember that. Uh, we had, uh, my, my dad's best friend was a sheriff of our county, and thieves had stolen a truck and several other items from Fort Knox. And so when the uh, police came and the FBI were there, uh, they took my fingerprint on a mirror of that truck, and I was, kept that for several years. I was, thought that was a pretty cool thing. But, uh, but I've never been arrested, so that maybe that'll put you at peace a little bit. But today we're going to talk about an arrest, and we're going to talk about the most innocent man who ever lived and how he was arrested, leading to the most unjust and untimely and, un, uh, and unholy death ever recorded in human history. We're beginning today a new series called Journey to the Cross. And, you know, we planned for several months to have this series leading up to Easter. And I have to be honest and tell you that it was tempting to kind of deviate from the plan to, uh, to, you know, talk about our current situation. But, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I was convinced that, no, we should go ahead with this. And I, I told our team earlier that I would rather uh, focus on Jesus' true sufferings than our own minor inconveniences right now. So we're going to continue on talking about that and then try to connect that and relate that to ourselves a little bit later in the service. And so in the Scripture we read, as we approach this time of the year, near Easter time, that Jesus had called his 12 disciples together to share with them in the Passover meal. And this would be their last meal together, aptly called the Last Supper, we call that. And it was a time that Jesus wanted to gather with his friends and to share with them in this uh, traditional celebration. It's interesting that the book of John takes five chapters, chapters 13 through 17, approximately one-fourth of the entire book to describe what happened this, this one night of Jesus' life. That's amazing, but once we get into it, you might understand why he took so much time because there was so much packed into it. The Bible says that Jesus knew that the devil had put it into the heart of Judas, who was one of the 12 disciples, a man who had spent almost three years traveling with Jesus to come and, and to go and betray him to his enemies. But Judas also was invited to the meal as well as the other disciples. And when they arrived there at the upper room, Jesus welcomed them then, and then unexpectedly, he took a towel and a basin of water and did what any normal house servant would do, the lowest of servants. He washed the feet of his disciples, teaching them what servanthood was all about. Jesus then shared the Passover meal with them, and he warns them that one of them would betray him, shocking everyone. And then kind of to the side. He tells Judas to go and do what he has to do. And then he predicts Peter would betray him, not once, but three times. And then Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper with his disciples, and he encourages them with the promise of the Holy Spirit. There's so much that was packed into this one night of Jesus' life, such an important moment. And Jesus, feeling the urgency of the moment, knew that he had to spend a lot of time, focused time with his disciples. 
And when then when their time was up, they leave the upper room, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prays in agony to his Father, knowing what is before him, but also he prays much of that prayer was spent for his disciples. Jesus knew what was coming upon himself, but he also knew what would come upon his disciples as well, and he agonized over that, and he suffered to the point, the Bible says, that his capillaries burst, causing a mingling of blood and sweat. This prayer is known as the high priestly prayer of Christ, praying for the church, in fact, praying for us today. But his disciples, unfortunately, slept through the entire prayer. And as Jesus prayed and spent this time in agony with the Father, his prayer is suddenly interrupted by an approaching crowd of people. And I'm going to read this account. I'm going to read from a book called One Perfect Life, which basically is a composite harmony of the four Gospels. And so it would be difficult to follow along just in one account of the Gospels because this kind of brings them all together and gives us a full picture of what happened that night. It says, and immediately while Jesus was still speaking, behold, a great multitude with swords and clubs came. And he was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus. For Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and the scribes and Pharisees and elders of the people, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him safely away. As soon as he had come, he immediately went up to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, friend, why have you come? Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now, when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you, I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then they came and laid their hands on Jesus and seized him. When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus answered and said, permit even this, and he touched the ear and healed him. Jesus said to Peter, put up your sword into the sheath, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the Scripture be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, the chief priests, the captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to tame me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. All this was done that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then the detachment, detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Then all of his disciples forsook him and fled. You know, we know the account that Jesus had come to the point in his life where he knew that the end was near, that soon he would be taken because of the opposition against him. 
Judas had previously agreed to betray Jesus, both physically and symbolically, by leading his enemies to him when he would be in a private and quiet place away from the crowd so as to avoid a riot. The betrayal price was 30 pieces of silver, not a lot of money in that day. But Judas knew that Jesus and his disciples would be at their most vulnerable point following this long evening of being together of the Last Supper. He knew that more than likely they would go to the Garden of Gethsemane after the meal where Jesus would pray. And so whenever Jesus had his brief interaction with Judas at the Last Supper and dismissed him to go do what he had to do, he went directly to Jesus' enemies and he made final plans to deliver Jesus to them. He led a large detachment of soldiers and armed men to go and find Jesus. The words used here describe anywhere from 200 to 600 men made up of the officials of the chief priests and Pharisees, temple guards, and even a group of Roman soldiers. They carried torches and swords and clubs and other weapons to go find this unarmed innocent man. The Bible says there that Judah stood with them. I think that's really ironic because once Judas had stood and followed Jesus Christ, but now he was solidly solidly standing with Jesus' enemies. I believe that goes to show just how easy it is for a person who might seem to follow Jesus Christ, at the same time be very far from him. Judas had spent three concentrated years with Jesus. He had heard all of his teaching. He had seen all the miracles. He absorbed the love of Jesus He knew Jesus personally, intimately, and then he turned his back on Jesus. He heard, but he didn't believe. He observed, but he didn't accept. And I think that's a warning to us today because we can seem to be a real Christian. We can grow up in church. We can attend church with our spouse and our family or watch it on Facebook Live. We can do it with our friends, and then one day we can throw it all away. And we can do something so uncharacteristically like Christ, so betraying to Christ, can seem to be a great, strong Christian husband or wife or father and mother, a church leader, and suddenly walk away from that. I've seen it too many times to count. I know it can happen to all of us, to any of us, because we don't know how Satan can enter into our hearts if we're not carefully guarding our hearts. You know, we don't know when Judas began to slip away, if Judas ever was totally in with the rest of the disciples. But there were some signs throughout Jesus' ministry. In John chapter 12, we're told that Judas was a thief, and he took money from the money bag that he was in charge of. Maybe it seemed like a small thing at the time, just a loan to himself. But that was just a part of his character, and it revealed the person that he was, soon to become the one who betrayed his Lord and his friend. You know, John reminds us that Jesus knew all of these things. He knew that they would happen, and he wasn't surprised at all. In fact, again, a few hours earlier, he had subtly identified Judas as his betrayer and had sent him out of the meal to go finalize the plans. So Judas goes and then leads this army of armed men into the quiet of the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus steps out to meet them. Judas immediately steps forward because he was able to identify Jesus alone in the dark, knowing him so well, and he walks over and gives Jesus a kiss, which was agreed upon sign that he would use to identify Jesus in the dark. And Jesus says to his friend, are you really betraying me with the kiss? And then Jesus asked the crowd, who are you seeking? Who are you looking for? And they replied to him, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am he. 
an amazing thing happens. I had never noticed this before, but when Jesus said that, the Bible says that they drew back and they fell to the ground. They fell to the ground. That was a pretty common reaction to divine revelation. People were struck and they fell down. And this happened when Jesus said, I am the one you're looking for. But you know, it's more than just identifying himself as Jesus. The words I am are powerful. In fact, they come even from the Old Testament. God told Moses when Moses said, who do I say sends me to release the people from the Egyptians? And God said, tell them, I am sends you. I am who I am. Earlier, Jesus had gotten in trouble with the religious leaders in John chapter 8 when he said to them, before Abraham was, I am. It was another insult to them, they felt, because they didn't feel that Jesus was God. But maybe this remark, not only knocking them to their feet, but also it stunned them, but then reminded them of the mission that they were on, that Jesus was committing blasphemy in their eyes by claiming to be God. It was a powerful statement that knocked them down. They stand back up. Jesus asked them once more who they were looking for. It was one last chance, I think. Maybe one last chance for Judas to come to his senses. Maybe one last chance for these officials to recognize who Jesus really was. But you know, the moment passed. So hard were their hearts that they would not even acknowledge who Jesus was in this tense moment. They would not change their mind. And what Jesus said to them is that this is your moment. This is the moment of darkness. But you know what? I believe that God orchestrates moments in our life. God gives us moments when we're faced with the truth and we have to decide, what are we going to do with Jesus? Do we believe this is the Son of God? These people that night had the truth right in front of them. It was blatantly obvious. Jesus had spoken words of love and truth and of God. He'd worked miracles and signs, but they rejected it soundly. You know, the Bible says that God isn't willing for anyone to perish, but that everybody should come to repentance. And I I believe that God gives everybody one chance to know, at least one moment to know. But if God gives you two moments to know, then you really need to respond because many people may never get that second opportunity. Every moment, every chance God gives you to respond to him, you need to respond and react to him. And so that moment was there and then that moment passed. But then Jesus goes into protective mode for his disciples He offers himself by saying, I am the one you're seeking. Let everybody else here go. Remember, he had just asked God in his prayer to protect and preserve his disciples. And now he tries to shield them from his enemies. Jesus knew that he was the sacrifice that God had prepared and provided for people. And he stepped forward to accept the role, surrendering without a fight. He knew what was coming. Not maybe specifically, but he knew that it would be a time of agony in the next few hours, and he just wanted to keep the disciples out of it. So the Bible says that when he stepped forward, the crowd seized him, and his disciples who had been asleep only a few moments before are now fully awake, and they're unsure what to do. Should they fight back to defend Jesus? Everything in them said, we have to stop this moment. And you know, some of them were armed. In the middle of all this, suddenly the unexpected happened. From out of the darkness, Peter, who had been asleep for hours, stepped forward. Well, maybe it wasn't so unexpected, to be honest with you, because Peter was the bold and impetuous leader of that group. If anybody was going to do something dumb and ratchet up the attention, uh, the tension right now, it was going to be Peter. Peter whipped out his sword, and he sliced off the right ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. You know, someone said that Peter is either amazingly accurate with his sword 
to slice off a guy's ear without touching him any other way, or he was so inept with the sword that he could miss the guy's head and, and hit his ear. I don't know which it was. Probably the latter. Remember, Peter was not a swordsman. He was a fisherman. He probably gutted several fish, but I doubt he had wielded a sword very much. But in that moment, suddenly everybody's on edge. Suddenly, probably everybody has a sword in their hand. And it looks like a bloodbath is about to happen. Peter's going to deny that he even knew who Jesus was three times in just a, a couple of hours, but, but now he's willing to single-handedly take on a whole group of armed men. And Jesus is trying to defuse the situation, but J Peter's just rapid, ratcheted up several levels. He thought he was fighting for Jesus when in reality he was fighting actually against Jesus. But you know, that was the character of Peter. He was kind of like a bull in a china shop, and once again, he's kind of got a problem brought up. But again, Jesus speaks, and the situation de-escalates. He says, Peter, put up your sword, because if you fight with a sword, you're going to die with a sword. And then Jesus picks up Malchus' bleeding ear, puts it back on, and heals him. You know, I think that's an amazing moment, if you think about it. With all the tension that's going on, everything that's happening, Jesus knowing what's before him, Jesus under arrest, basically, he stops to heal a man's ear that he didn't even know. I think that tells us that people matter to Jesus no matter what. It's also interesting that of the four gospel writers, only Luke, the doctor, mentions that he was healed. I guess that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? But Jesus reminded them that if fighting was the best option, he would definitely have a hand in that. That he, in fact, could call down 12 legions of angels. By the way, that's like 72,000 angels that could come down. I think they could probably have stopped everything since back in 1 Kings chapter 19, we're told that one angel killed 185,000 soldiers in one night. So it really wasn't a battle that Jesus was needing or an army that he was looking for. And it wasn't physical at all that was engaging. In fact, Scripture had said and predicted that this would happen in this very way, his betrayal and the circumstances of it. And Jesus knew that he could not resist. He must go with them and drink the cup of suffering the Father had given him. The cup of suffering is what he called it. And that's why he was willingly going with them. And you know, he tells them, you know, guys, you didn't have to come and do this in the middle of the night. And we could have done this anytime. I visited, after all, visited and talked with you every day in the temple. We could have done this anytime in daylight. But you know, this was the moment of darkness. The darkness had emboldened them and the prince of darkness had emboldened not only Judas to betray, but also them to take him to trial. And so Jesus diffused the situation. The disciples were allowed to remain free. They forsook him and fled immediately on their own. And Jesus was led away to be tried throughout the night. And Judas, the betrayer, we know the end of him as well. He stayed in the shadows until Jesus had been condemned to death. And suddenly he realized his mistake he was remorseful and he tried to return the money and undo what he had done, but it was impossible to turn the clock back. And the Bible says that he went then and he hung himself. You know, Judas' betrayal fulfilled a prophecy that was made hundreds of years before, but his death was so unnecessary. How do we know that? Because true to form and true to Jesus' prediction, Peter will deny Jesus three times, but later on he will repent and be restored. And there's no doubt that Judas would have had the same forgiveness as well had he been willing to repent of his sin. But he didn't. 
And I suppose that might be a commentary on how we look at our sins sometimes. Do we have the courage, the humility to repent when we really blow it in life? You know, Jesus' arrest was the first step on his journey to the cross. And next week, we're going to take the next step and talk about the trial that occupied most of the night in front of the Jewish chief priest and the Sanhedrin. But today, I want to go back, and I want to wrap up by, by asking you to consider the question that Jesus gave. The question he asked them twice, in fact, and the question was, who are you looking for? Who are you looking for? You know, that really is a great question when you think about it. Who or what are you looking for to find meaning in life? And that's a great question all the time, but maybe even more so in this unique time that we have never experienced before. What are you looking for to find meaning in life right now? Because so many of the things that we have found meaning in in life have changed. So many of those things aren't even there anymore. I mean, we have a busy life. Many of us find our meaning in our busyness of life, but most of us have slowed down quite a bit. Our social interaction has been reduced and limited and distanced, we call it. Sports that people lived to watch the entire year have been halted. Tournaments, canceled. Seasons, postponed. Hobbies, shelved. The things that we have looked for to give us joy and hope, many of those things are taken away. Money, money has been, you know, we have a roaring economy, but now we have fears, right? It's slowing, possible recession been spoken of. Some have lost their jobs. Other people simply can't work, can't find work because of the, the crisis that we're in. So money has kind of lost that. Our health, our health is good for most of us, but we have fears, don't we? We have an invisible enemy that we don't know how it might attack us. We hear about cases doubling every few days, so there's fear in our health. We don't know. Possessions, uh, heck, we can't even be assured we're going to have toilet paper these days, right? You know? So the reality is that we can't be dependent upon these things. They just don't matter. What are you looking for to find meaning in? So many things we took for granted these days have, have been affected, even our worship services together. Guys, now is a great time to stop and evaluate and examine life. And let me ask you this. Have you examined seriously Jesus Christ? Have you examined him? He is the only answer, not only to life, but also to these trying times and these moments. It's time to turn to Christ and turn from the other things that we've found meaning in. And I believe that is a lesson for us today, to find meaning, to find purpose while we feel like that we've been inconvenienced in some way, let's think about what Jesus did to give us life. And let's embrace him. Let's embrace him. Let's recommit our lives to him. You know, I've thought through this and I've thought, what do we learn from this time? We learn how to love people, maybe in a different way. But we also learn how to come to God because in times like this, historically, down through time, in times like this, we run to the only source that we have. We run to Christ we run to God and we embrace Him and we reach out to Him. We repent of our, our ways, our sin, but also our apathy. And we, we just cling to God because He alone can give us hope and can give us strength. And all of that only because of Jesus, the one that God gave to us for us to have eternal life. And we're going to turn our thoughts right now to that amazing sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And a little bit earlier, I know that Zach encouraged you to maybe to find some things in your kitchen or at home, wherever you are, to share in communion. 
So I'm going to challenge you right now, if you would, to maybe get those things prepared and share those with your family. I would encourage the, the dads or moms in the family uh, to prepare yourself and to serve your family. And let this be a moment of reflection together. We're going to give you a time to do that. Because we know that at that, that very last supper that I described a few moments ago, that Jesus took two common emblems of that day, of that, of that meal they were enjoying. He took a piece of unleavened bread, and he took a cup of grape juice. And maybe you don't have those very things in your home, but if you take a piece of bread, a cracker, maybe some juice or some water of some sort, and really the, the subject isn't, or the items aren't nearly as important as the symbolism that we put behind them. So if you would take those and just take a few moments of reflection, the Bible says that Jesus took the bread to symbolize his body that would be broken. He took the cup to symbolize his blood, the liquid that would be poured out. And so as you take of these emblems, would you do that in remembrance of him, remembering his love for you and his sacrifice upon the cross? So would you bow with me as we pray and ask God to bless these things that we might take them and remember him? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. Lord, as we come to this time of a very sober remembrance of what Jesus endured for us, we know that the arrest, Father, as unjust as it was, it was only the, the beginning that would lead to a night of terror and then to a day, the next day of sacrifice, horrifying death for Jesus. Heavenly Father, help us now as we try to absorb this, Lord, and we think of the true sufferings of Jesus Christ. Father, as we wrap our minds around the immense love that he had for us, his willingness to be arrested, to be humiliated, and to be taken, even though he could have called down angels, could have been victorious and could have destroyed these soldiers in a, in a second, God. But instead, he humbly submitted to them and to this arrest that would lead to his death. And Lord, as we take now this piece of bread and this cup, God, I pray that we would use them to remember the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, the body broken, the blood shed for us, that we might have the way to come to God. So, Lord, may we take these, these, these uh, emblems and this moment in reflection and in worship of you. Father, draw us close to you through them. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.